Thank you, guys. You know, that is the first time that I have heard a prayer before the sermon, uh, before delivering it. Uh, usually I've already delivered the sermon when someone prays the, the prayer right before this. It's, it's so good to have just even a couple of us together uh, working through this and being together. Um, I want to start real quick just as a note uh, I want to share with our community. Um, something we haven't really talked about very much lately, and that is um, giving and tithing. Um, we believe and have before this and still do that that is an important part of our worship as Christians. And in this season of separation, that should not be changed, um, though how and what we give may be drastically different. Right now, I want to encourage all of us to continue in some way in our giving, that we would be a, a people that is always giving of ourselves, giving of what we have to the Lord's work. Um, that can happen here at Calvary uh, through the mail or on our webpage, um, or if you need another option, you can reach out to me or someone else who knows what's going on. We'd love to help you do that. If you have nothing to do with us, uh, you are far away from us and don't know us, um, we would encourage you to, to give as well. Um, whether that's to us or maybe to a local charity and, and a local, local ministry that's doing work near you, that would be a good thing to do. During the season, our church expenses continue um, and our love and help of people in the community increases. And there actually may be some new lines of, uh, of money that we're going to need to spend on, on updates in the building or on different ways of ministry. And so we would love for our people to continue to prayerfully decide what their giving is going to look like in this season. And as they do so, the, the always reminder that when we give as Christians, it should be joyful, willing, and sacrificial, right? Those are the guidelines that we give, and, and those are the, the heart and the spirit we want to give in. That said, I'd like to move us into the time of our, our message today, of into our, our passage here. And like I've said, um, it is good. It's good to be here with even a handful, with our, our worship team and a couple others, um, as we are coming into this time. What I know is that God is working in this season in really whatever way that we are able to do this and able to worship. He's at work. And so we come together with, with joy in that. Friends, we all know someone like this. Now, maybe you are this person, someone that knows God exists, someone who believes in Jesus, that he was real, powerful, and that there was something special about him, but just won't follow him. Like I said, we all know someone like that, or we are that person. And in today's passage, we're going to see um, some some people who are just like that. We're in John chapter 11, and I'd love for you to turn there in your Bibles. This is immediately after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Last week, Scott beautifully brought um, us into this scene, into this passage, in which Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and Jesus gives these final words. He says, unbind him and let him go. 
See, there's no need for him to be bound by the putridness of his previous death. The stink of decay because of the penalty of sin. Or bound by the tight wraps that would have prevented him, if they had stayed on, from living the new life that Jesus had just called him to. And this is true for us. Jesus, if he is our Lord and Savior, has risen us to life from death. The stink, the stench, the putridness, and the bondage that we were once subject to is gone if we are in him. Friends, it's been removed. We are new. We are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. The raising of Lazarus is a brilliant and clear announcement of the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. And coming out of that moment, coming out of that passage, it is a moment in which the truth of Christ was undeniable to all who witnessed it and all who heard from those witnesses what Jesus had done. So at this point in the story, we might expect a great response to Jesus. To trust and believe in him as the only begotten Son of God. As the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of us all. And the good news is that we would not be wrong in that. To expect that there are those who now believe who did not. But even then, there are still those who refuse to follow, and who will not only remain enemies of God, but who will double down, raise the stakes, and go for broke, because even though they recognize the power of God in Christ Jesus, they refuse to follow him. And it's with that that we come into John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57, our passage for today. I'm going to read this for us as we come into this time. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might 
arrest him. Friends, it is stunning when I read a passage like this one. It is stunning to the believer, to you and and I, I hope, that there would be those who would seek the life of Jesus, that would seek to put him to death. Now, we know that is true, and Scripture tells us that, but there are moments when you read of it and you think, how? How could they do such a thing? Even more so here, how could a group of people who are responsible for the worship of the nation, responsible for the community, the life, the teaching of the word, responsible for raising those up in faith who they have been put in, in, in charge of entrusted to as shepherds, how could they do such a thing? But we know that where sin abounds, evil reigns. And we should never be surprised by what, um, by what evil people are willing to do. Today's passage actually feels like a bit of an interruption. Sandwiched between the raising of Lazarus, as we saw last week, and what we'll be looking at next week at the beginning of John chapter 12, which is where Mary, Lazarus' sister, comes and anoints Jesus' feet and celebrates him. And what we see there is Jesus' honoring of her and love and care for her. Right, so you go from Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in the beginning of chapter 11 to 12, and, and you get this bit that we're looking at today, and it feels like it's an interruption. An interruption of the wonderful and amazing work and the demonstration of Jesus' power in raising Lazarus, his love and his care for his friends, something that we pay attention to as believers, don't we? Because let's be honest, this is the Jesus that we love hearing and talking about, right? The friend of sinners. It is in Jesus' friendship with them that we see our friendship made possible with Jesus. But the truth of the matter is that this passage is not an interruption to that story. It is the reason for the rest of it. For without the plotting and the scheming and the outright sin for all of us to see so clearly in the putting of the creator of the world to death, friendship is made possible. And it is in this scheming and in this sin that we see the work of God made complete. For God is not hindered by our hindrance. His plan will come to fruition with or without our help. With or without our fighting against him, his plans are perfect. And so what we see here is his working and his plan coming together. So today what I want to do, first we're going to spend some time looking at what it means to uh, what it means um, that someone would f- won't follow him even though they see him for who he is, right? Why is it that someone who could see still won't believe? And you should know there's a warning in that for us who are followers of him. Second, what I want to do is give us a really strong encouragement as we consider our troubled world that is marked by sin, chaos, and trouble. 
And in that, we will focus on God's sovereign plan as we see it in this passage. That's our roadmap for today. So what is it that keeps someone from following Jesus? Now, we're going to be in verses 45 through 48 in this, but before we do, I want you to consider this. One of the most amazing things that has ever happened in the history of the world has just taken place. A dead man who is rotting in the grave is brought back to life. And many people, an entire crowd, see this happen. There is nobody questioning whether or not it took place or not. Right? There is nobody who's, who's wondering whether or not it happened. But what we see here in the passage is a disagreement about how to respond to it. And what we see are three different responses. In verses 45 through 48, we see three responses. The first, in verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Right? There are those who came and they saw and they believed. These are people that we can assume at this point have salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. They know that what he's done is good. There's a second group in verse 46. We're introduced to them. It says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, we may wonder what their response to Jesus was. Are these people who would then go to the Pharisees, are they scared or worried, wondering what to do with what they've just experienced? So they go to their spiritual leaders, the Pharisees, their teachers, and they go for help and understanding. Or are they a group of people who are just simply telling on Jesus? They know that this is trouble, and so they're reporting it. Or are these people who, like those in verse 45, have seen and believed, and for some reason feel called or directed to go tell everybody they can find the good news. As I read this, the, the answer comes to me in, in verse 46 when it says, but some of them, well, who's them? The only them in this passage so far are those who believe. And so what I think we have here is a group of people who believe in Jesus and see the need to tell people about it. And what better way to tell people about it than to go to the leaders, than to go to the teachers and say, hey, look, the, the Messiah is here, we've, the one we've been waiting for, right? And so they go and they want to communicate this. And the interesting thing in that is that if that is true, then then here's a group of people who are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, and what does it do? It hinders the work of Jesus, right? They, they cause problems for him. And friends, there are times where as Christians, in our faithfulness, we may cause problems, and that's okay. That's a, a good thing sometimes, for us to be Christians doing what we're supposed to be doing and rubbing people the wrong way. That will happen. So to recap, we have those who believe, and we have those who believe who I'm pretty sure, 
um, also go and they, they're sharing what Jesus has done with, with Lazarus. And he wants the, the, the leaders, the Pharisees, to know this. And then, of course, we have the third group. And that is the Pharisees. And we can add to their number as the story moves forward. The Sadducees, the, another group of Jewish leaders um, that form the Jewish council. And in verses 47 through 48, we see their response. It says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Right? They, they get together. And, and I, you just need to notice that they believe that Jesus has done this. There's no debate amongst them whether or not he did this thing in raising Lazarus. There are simply too many witnesses, too many people who have said this happened. Not only that, but they've been watching him for three years at this point. And they've seen other countless miracles, healings, people being raised from being paralyzed, blind to see, right? They have seen so much. There's no debate here about whether or not he is a, a fraud or whether or not he is real. They know he has power. Now, they may want to disagree where that power comes from, but they know he is significant. And this is a problem for them. They won't follow him. They will not follow him. And the question is, why? I mean, for most of us, we would think that after seeing someone raised from the dead, and after seeing the consistency of the teaching, after seeing how it's backed up in Scripture all the way through, all this time, you would think, and, and I know I would, why won't they follow them? And that's the way we think when we encounter people who we know believe in God, know that Jesus is real, but continue to live their life apart from him. In our passage here, we see a couple things. I'll point them out, and then we'll kind of sum that up together. The first is they are holding on to politics as a solution to their problems. Okay, they are holding on to politics as a solution to their problems. See, the nation of Israel, uh, particularly the city of Jerusalem, was always in a place of trouble and, and, and volatility. And where they sat in history at this time was um, at really at the grace of the nation of, of Rome, of the, of, of the empire, right? And so they had permission to be what they were and to do what they wanted to do. And the Romans often ruled this way. They would give a well-established religious or cultural group um, the permission to keep their identity, oftentimes to keep their leaders, even to the point sometimes of being able to keep their kings, keep their, 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 their high-up rulers, as long as they were willing to submit, as long as they were willing to keep everybody in control. See, Rome at this point had stabilized things. They had made life far safer than they had ever experienced before. But the Jewish leaders knew that they had a place of privilege that was purely at the will and mercy of the Roman emperor. That they had in many ways 
begun to look to politics and political power as the solution to their nation's problems. Forgetting, of course, the truth that their problems all throughout history were always tied to the spiritual state of their hearts. So they had begun to look at the government as the solution when what they needed was a spiritual answer. Friends, there are times when we need to remember that even though the government is ordained for the good, we see that in Romans 13, we see that we are called to submit to that authority. What we know is that the government is not enough to solve our problems because our problems, our troubles, are spiritual at the start. Abortion, addiction, violence, poverty, right? We could go on and on. I mean, the coronavirus, right? All of these problems have a root and start in the fall, in the sin entering of the world, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And so we hope, we may expect as Christians that our government will be God's agent in the world. We are called to keep our government accountable to that purpose. And we hope and pray that they will help in these solutions, but they are not. The government is not the answer. The solution is men and women's hearts being captivated by the gospel, turning them from death to life, removing their old lives, and giving them new ones. That's the solution to the problems of this world. And so they have looked to a place that could not give them what they needed. And they were afraid of losing that. They're also afraid of losing authority, influence, and power. And I've said this before, I will keep on saying it. If Jesus is Lord and Savior of our lives, then we know that we are not. Right? I know that Jesus is Lord and Savior, which means I know that I am not the Lord or Savior of my life. Only he has the power to be either of those things. And when you follow Jesus, what you're doing is saying to him, you will be these things. And they're unwilling to let go. To let go of the power, the authority, to let go of their position. And they could lose their position and their power and their authority in two ways. The first is we've kind of already talked about. The Roman government could just simply come in and take it. And they did that periodically. They would remove the, the leader and they would put somebody else in who would do a better job for Roman interests. The other way that you could lose power is if the people that you were supposed to be leading stopped following you because they found something better. And we see both of these in this passage in verse 48. Listen to the desperation in this passage. Listen to the desperation as they say these words together. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation, right? The people are going to stop following him, and the government, the Roman government's going to come in and remove it from them. See, they are under the impression they have, that, that they are there by the Roman authority and by the will 
of the people. They need to be reminded that their position is simply there at the sovereign will, not of Rome, not of people, but of God. And they've forgotten that. Right, as I read through this passage, I hope you see this as, we, as you read through it as well. There is a glaring omission. They have a big problem in front of them, and they need a solution. What do they not do? They don't pray. They don't say, they don't ask, what does God want us to do with this Jesus? They plot and they scheme instead. Friends, the reason for this is because I think they've become what could be called a functional atheist. Right? They are a people who believe that God is real, but they don't look to him for either the solution or the answers to their problems or their questions. They have become those who, who do faith, they speak faith, but they don't really believe that God is involved really much at all. And here's the warning for us. I think there are times when we do this as well. There are times when we stumble in our trust that God will provide for us and take care of us. Right, the Lord's Prayer starts, give us this day our daily bread. The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is, is such a prayer that we are called every single day to ask him for what we need every day. And when we stumble in that trust, what we're doing is, is doubting whether or not God is going to. Will God provide for us for what we need? We become functional atheists when we go our own way, when we do our own thing, even though we know God's plan for us is far better. When we know what we should be doing and like Jonah, decide to do something else. It's a statement about whether or not we believe that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. We are functional atheists when we hold on to what we were Instead of taking hold of what Christ has made us to be and is bringing us into becoming. When we look at our old selves and are unwilling to forgive what we have been and take up what he is making us to be. Friends, we are a people who, like Lazarus, has been called out of the grave, told to put our old, to take off our old clothes and put new ones on. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. It's what Paul writes. He says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Friends, we are functional atheists when we doubt the work of Christ in our lives to take us from here and bring us over to here. To make us and eliminate what we have been and make us into something new. If this is you, when this is you, friends, I want to tell you there's no excuse. There is no reason acceptable before our Lord. The only solution is simply this, to confess our sin, repent, and turn to Jesus and follow him. 
period. Because his plans will not be thwarted. His will has not and is not, will ever be broken. And that's what we see in the next part of this passage. So in verses uh, 49 through 57, here's what we read. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Caiaphas should know better. Caiaphas, who is the high priest who is the one who's charged with the teaching of God's law, comes up with a suggestion that violates God's law. It is against God's law to put an innocent man to death for any reason. Caiaphas, even in proving himself to be an enemy of God, cannot help but speak God's truth. Right? He is not on God's side here. And yet somehow he speaks exactly what God wants him to speak. If you want to highlight two things, let us see this really clearly. First, it says that he did not say this of his own accord. Right, that doesn't mean that he didn't know what he was saying. And he clearly does know what he's saying. He's making an argument of, of logic and understanding and, and saying, hey, this is what we need to do. And it's not a very good plan. But the thing is, God uses his words and has a whole nother meaning for them. Right? So he declares, isn't it better that one man be killed, that the whole nation be saved? And on the one hand, we hear that and we think, no! <laughs> right? That is not the decision we get to make. But on the other hand, the Christian says, amen! Right? Because... It's the truth. Because when we look at the gospel, that is what the gospel is. It is one man dying for the good of not even just the nation, but everybody. One that is giving his life on his own. It's funny, every pastor who's, I think, ever preached and been full of the Spirit when he did, um, knows that there are moments when this happens in a really good way. Right, there are times when I, I preach a sermon, I share the word, and I'm talking to people afterwards, and they say, Pastor, that was really good. It spoke right to my heart. And I say, hey, what part? And they say something to me, and I say, I didn't say anything like that. Right, that is not what I said. And yet God could use those words that I spoke and said, and, and use them by the power of the Holy Spirit to... to change someone's heart. Right? God has the power to take 
the well-intentioned words of a pastor and make them go so far beyond what he imagined. He also has the power to take the, the, the evil words of someone who is his enemy and use them for his glory and his good. The second thing we see here is that we are told that he is that he prophesied. Now, the high priest's office was actually one of prophecy. It was one of the things they were called to. This is not a word that's used lightly. It, it's weighty. See, because prophecy always comes from the Lord. It's not just a thought that one has that's deep. But it is the words of the Lord. And so as he speaks what he speaks, he's speaking God's words. He doesn't even know it. Doesn't even know it. And he's telling us what God's will is and what will come to be. Because God's plans come to the end. They come to the finish line. In verses 54 through 57, we see that plan of God still working out. Jesus keeps his distance, right? They want to kill him, so he goes and he hides. Now, I will just say really carefully and really, really clearly, it would be far too much um, of this verse to say, hey, this is just like our current social distancing rules, right? That is not what's happening here. What's happening here is that Jesus, who recognizes danger, he keeps his distance of it, not for safety, not out of fear, right? We know that because within the week, he will walk into the city of Jerusalem, and a few days later will we'll willingly be arrested, tried, and put on the cross, dead, and buried. He is doing what he's doing. He's moving away so that the perfect will of God will, will be, will be in, fulfilled. So he does what he needs to for the perfect plan, in the perfect timing of the Lord. And that's a really important note for us to make. We who would like to be on the side of God here. That we would work within his perfect plan and perfect timing. Friends, we can be with him or we can be against him. But we will not stop him. How much better is it to be working for him and with him than against him? So now what I want to do is, is land in this truth that is declared by God through the unknown knowing Caiaphas. In verses 51 through 52, it says this, and this is John telling us later what Caiaphas meant, what God meant by these words. He said that Jesus would die for the nation, but not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, right? Sometimes we ask the question, what is God's plan? Well, friends, this, this is God's plan. That he would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Let's just break this down fairly quickly. That Jesus would die for the nation, just like Caiaphas said. He would die for the nation, but not the way, not in the way that Caiaphas imagined, right? Caiaphas envisions Jesus' death as salvation from Roman displeasure. 
but God envisions Jesus' death as the salvation from sin, from the just wrath of a righteous God against sinners who deserve it. Caius envisions Jesus' death as a necessary evil, but Jesus, God envisions Jesus' death that he would die for the fulfillment of God's perfect and good plan that he has been working from the beginning. You see how small-sighted Caiaphas is and how big of a view God has for the same action, the same endeavor. But it's not just for the nation, right? It's not just for the nation only. Caiaphas' vision is just simply, it's too small. Yes, it is better that one innocent man would die to prevent the destruction of their nation. Right? It is better that one would give their life. And, and we operate on that principle, not on the taking of someone's life, but knowing that, that many of us, maybe most of us, or at least some of us, would be willing to give up our lives and the sacrifice, the saving of others. Right? We believe that. How much better is it how much more so that an innocent man would die to save the world, the eternal souls of, of many from all the nations, all the tribes, and all the tongues in all time, drawing together not just one nation, not just Israel, but all people into his church. Most of you know, if you know me at all, that I love to hike. This has uh, been um, a big part of my life and for many years. And one of the primary reasons I love to hike is because I love seeing beautiful things. And there is oftentimes um, a, a beauty that needs to be walked to, <laughs> right? That is less tainted by other things in this world. And there are many times when I'm hiking, I set a goal, I want to get to the top of that mountain, or I want to get to that mountain lake, or I want to get to that cliffside, and I know I've heard or I've seen pictures that it's gorgeous there. And along the way, there's lots of pretty things. And along the way, you know, you start to get tired after a while. And so you decide to sit down and you think to yourself, you know, I've seen some nice ponds. I've seen some beautiful hills. I think I've gone far enough. But you know that if you get back on your feet, and you keep going, and you get to that spot that you were supposed to get to, the place you set your goal on, your eyes on, that it is going to be so much more glorious. There are times when I fear that our vision as Christians is way too small, that we are far too content to stop along the way at, at nice moments when there is something bigger for us. Friends, are we content to stop along the way and not go far enough? Well, how far is far enough? Well, let's see as we finish this out. It says, but also, right, not just one nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The children of God who are scattered abroad. Friends, that is a defined group, right? The children, not some of the children, not, um, not a, a generic, right? This is, these people have names that Jesus knows. 
He knows the hairs on their heads, right? Jesus' plan here, his purpose here, is not just to gather those in Israel, but to gather all those who are children of God who are scattered abroad. All of them. That is when the plan is done. That is when the vision gets to the end. When every single one has been brought in from being scattered into one what? Gathered into one, what does that mean? Into the church. Not the church building, right? I think many of us have figured out we can kind of do church without the church building. But I think most of us in this season right now have figured something out. It's really, really hard to do church without the people, without the, the friends and the family, without those who urge us on and push us on. Right? Jesus' purpose, his plan is to bring all in. Now there is a future moment that we need to latch on to as Christians in this season right now where we know, hey, we may have 10 people. We may be able to get to 20 or 30 or 50 groups. We may be able to get to 500. That is still a shadow. Barely a glimmer of what eternity will be like when all are gathered in. Friends, this has been God's sovereign plan from the beginning of time. And nothing has, nothing will, nothing can thwart that plan. Not a group of people who seek Jesus' death, right? The very seeking of Jesus' death is the very thing that brings that plan along. Friends, as his people, we get to be a part of that plan. That is part of our identity as new creatures, new creations. As we take off the old and we put on the new, we get to put on this plan. We get to have that purpose right alongside Christ himself until he comes again. Friends, Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Hear those words in Scripture. Let them sit in your hearts this week. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction, for the teaching. God, and we pray that this word would sink into us and would draw us out. God, that it would send us to seek those who are scattered, those who are your sheep, already yours. And Lord, we pray, we pray that we would see the fulfillment of this. We know that we will, whether in this life or whether in the next. But God, we pray that we would see this work brought near and brought to the end. Amen. message like that it's good that we have that moment to pause while I was walking up here because we need to let a message like that sink into our hearts and into our minds as we as we head into the time of communion and as I was sitting there listening to Matt speak God laid these verses on my heart when I was hearing what Caiaphas who had no idea what he was saying 
and he was talking about God's great plan that one man would die, even though he only saw a short part of that were for the nations. And then John explains that, no, Jesus was going to die for everyone. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is a beautiful plan. Sorry, haven't had too much communion wine yet, so let's not worry about that. Just tripped. But I, uh, I, I want us to think about that. And Matt talked about what does it look like, you know, in the big picture when we get to heaven. And I've always had this vision. Um, whether this is real or not, I, I don't know. This is just what I conjure up in my mind. That when we're welcomed into heaven and we can hear in the distance the worshiping voices of the saints, the nations of all colors, all nations, everyone who had put their faith in Christ. And as we come up over the hill, and again, this is just my vision of this. I can't wait to find out what's true. It's going to be even more glorious than my mind can make up. And we come across that hill, and then we see, as far as the eye can see, our brothers and sisters who came before us. What an awesome vision that's going to be even more glorious than that, I imagine. And this morning as we, as we come to communion, I just want to say that if, if you this morning are not a child of God, if you have not, in whatever way you haven't listened to the voice of God in your life and you have not responded to his call, I tell you, you know, we were all there at one time. All of us were. And now that I'm on the other side, I cannot see how anyone would not want to make that change, to become a child of God, to understand that Christ died for the ungodly. He died for you. He died for me. He gave his life so that I could live, so you could live. Communion is, is a picture of what Christ did for us and the fellowship that we get to have with him. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you, which of course he did when he died on the cross. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant that allows us to have life, that allows us to have forgiveness of sin, allows us to be in fellowship with him. This is what Christ did for us. He demonstrated his own life by dying for us while we were still sinners. So again, if you are not a believer this morning, the Lord's Supper is something that we as believers, we get to celebrate in communion with the Lord to remember what he has done for us. If you are not a believer, then I would ask you this morning to not partake in that. But I would ask you to consider where you are with Jesus today. And I would ask you to put your faith and trust in him. 
to understand what he has done for you and to give your life to him as the rest of us have done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just so grateful. Thank you for Matt's message, Lord. Thank you for that passage in John, Lord, in John 11. Father God, we don't understand why it is that people don't believe. But we are so thankful, Lord, as Matt said, that we're not in control, that you are. And even though we don't understand sometimes what it is that we are saying, you take that message and you proclaim it, and it is truth. And Lord, we just ask this morning as we come before you in communion, as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, as we do this in remembrance of you, Lord, that we bring you even more glory than we could even imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.